What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. I'm not sure that I agree with you 100% on your police work there, Lou. Yeah? Yeah. I think that vehicle there probably had dealer plates. DLR. Oh. This week on the show, Adam, we've got our top five Francis McDormand performances. Probably won't take a lot of police work to figure out whether Fargo's Marge Gunderson makes our less. A case maybe even Lou could solve. McDormand is a two-time Oscar winner for Best Actress, and her new film, Chloe Zhao's Nomadland, may put her in the conversation for a third. Brief thoughts on Nomadland and more. Oh, you betcha, yeah. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting with Josh and Adam. Later in the show, Josh, we'll get to a few thoughts on the movie that inspired this week's top five, Chloe Zhao's Nomadland, a film we have been highly anticipating. I know a lot of our listeners have as well. Unfortunately, it's looking like most people won't get to see it. For a little while, it had a little virtual release on December 4th, but in terms of wider audiences, I think it's now February. Yeah, it's just so strange trying to keep up with trying to track things down this year. Been kind of crazy. It has for sure. And with that release being on hold and wanting to maybe get into a thorough discussion about it at a point when more of our listeners will have had a chance to see it, we thought we would devote this show to one of our great screen actresses, Frances McDormand. Five Oscar nominations total, two wins, both for lead. She does have three Best Supporting Actress nominations in there. Josh, of course, we're going to reflect on our favorite performances. Probably will overlap maybe a little bit with some of our favorite movies. That tends to be the way I think it is. But what was the process like for you in terms of considering Frances McDormand and the performances you like the most? Just you know, asking that same question, I, I think we do when we do an actor-oriented top five is what makes them special? What makes them distinct? And then maybe what are the five performances that that are evidence of that? That kind of led me to another sort of related question as I was thinking about this, Adam, is traditionally when are women allowed to be angry on screen? And it struck me that there are usually two situations where that's okay um, from studios greenlighting green lighting projects, right? It's when Defending they're Defending se- the family? Is that one of them? <laughs> You're close, right? When they're okay. seeking vengeance for some sort of yeah. violence, I think that falls into that, right? The, the protective... Um, and vengeful woman, may, maybe something like Pam Greer in Coffee is an example from our black exploitation marathon. Then there's another mode, which is when they're crusaders for a certain issue. So think about mm-hmm. Julia Roberts, Aaron Brockovich, Sally Field, Norma Ray, that sort of stuff. And it struck me that Frances McDormand has, she's somewhat made a career of breaking that mold where in her best work, she portrays a more nuanced, a more complicated, not that those aren't all good performances that I mentioned, but um, maybe a more everyday sort of feminine anger, something that um, doesn't need this larger narrative construct around it. Um, and in doing that, you know, without having maybe always this cause behind her, sometimes it's a less sympathetic sort of feminine mm-hmm. anger she brings, but it's um, it's one she charges ahead with anyway. And I do think that's been a rare thing, at least in the time McDormand has been working. You could go back to, we just did a Betty Davis marathon, right? And we talked about how unapologetic she was 
on screen as an actor, as a woman. Um, Joan Crawford, you could probably say the same thing. I think it's interesting. The rivalry among them is a little ironic because I think they share that unapologetic form of female anger um, to their performances. McDormand, very different actor than those two, right? Very different style and approach. But I do think she does share that quality when you look at not every one of her roles, but the ones that... um, have been her most prominent, I'd say. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very astute and accurate framing here. The word unapologetic definitely is one that is littered throughout my top five notes. And there's one word in particular that became a running theme for me when I was thinking about McDormand and what makes her unique. And I think it really does connect perfectly back to what you're describing in terms of her unique sense of anger and how she does express that as a woman in all of these performances. So with that set up, let's go ahead and get into the countdown. Your number five, Frances McDormand performance. Yeah, I'm going to start with one of her angriest parts, and that's as Jane in Friends with Money. This is a 2006 film from writer-director Nicole Holofcener. And she gathers a great cast here. You've got Catherine Keener, Joan Cusack, a very good Jennifer Aniston, and then McDormand. Except for Aniston's character, who works as a maid, these are mostly well-off women who are negotiating their relationships, their privilege. McDormand's Jane is actually a fashion designer. And she's struggling. This is maybe one of those, you know, everyday characters that I was talking about before. She's she's struggling with her age, her her husband, and just this growing kind of unplaceable seething that's within her that, that she can't, you know, exactly name one thing as the source, but it's there um, and it's kind of um, overtaking her. And there's a scene in Friends with Money uh, where this kind of culminates in this embarrassing explosion that happens when these people cut in front of Jane while she's at the checkout line at Old Navy. Did you see that? Were they in front of me? No, this is crazy. I've been waiting in line. How important could being in front of me be? I'm down, all right. No, I mean, really, what kind of person are you? Do you feel like you really got away with something? Is this really worth it, Keith? Yeah, I'm sorry, but could you just step over there and wait your turn? Seriously. Is there a manager here? Is there a manager here? I'm the manager. So Francis McDormand giving us the first Karen. Yes, perhaps. <laughs> you know, to that point, Adam, I mentioned she could be less sympathetic, right? In some of these right. roles. I think that's what you're getting here. Certainly, if, if we were in line, we'd be looking at Jane sideways at this mm-hmm. demonstration. I think it's kind of great that McDormand doesn't try to sand the edges down on characters like this. Sometimes she'll give us a woman who's just pissed off and she's going to say to the audience, deal with it. You know, I'm, right. I'm not going to... I'm not going to explain her away or apologize for her. Now, that's not to say that she doesn't bring a layer of humanity. And and often it's desperation, you can Mm -hmm. sense in some of these performances, too, that lies underneath the frustration. I think her best ones have that. Here, I, I think you can sense it in that shift her voice makes into from being irate to suddenly a bit of a panic. It's like she she's she's exploded so quickly she's gotten ahead of herself and she surprised herself mm-hmm. with this rage and and then you know you kind of see that's where maybe a little bit of sympathy does come back into it. Um so yeah, Jane from Friends with Money. I'm going to start there for my top 5 McDormand performances. Yeah, definitely a lot of layers to even that bit of anger and rage being expressed and I think we're going to see that in all of our picks even In the cases where it really is just one scene that she has in the movie, 
And my number five is her performance as Bunny in John Sayles' 1996 film Lone Star. Sam, our producer, put out on Twitter, what's the best non-Fargo Cone Brothers performance? And my joke response was Lone Star. Of course, it's a John Sayles movie, as I said, and not a Cone Brothers movie. But she plays a character in Bunny who I feel like might have been edited out of a Coen Brothers film, and she could have just been dropped into this Texas border town investigation of a murder that happened decades ago. She comes from money. She's obsessed with football. And she is, as she quotes her father, describing her high-strung. This kid, Jose Brown, he does the 40 in 3.4. Soft hands, lateral movement, the whole package. Only a sophomore. So you still going to all the home games? Daddy's guys box in the stadium, and I'll fly to the Cowboy Way games when they're in the conference. And then on Friday nights, there's high school, of course. Churchill's got this boy, six foot six, 310 moves like a cat. High school, we're talking. Guess how much he can bench press? Guess how much he can bench press. It sounds sort of like a Southern twang version of Marge Gunderson or of Dot from Raising Arizona. And I was comparing this today and remembering back in 1996 when I saw these two movies, Fargo had come out, gotten a bigger release in March of 96. In June, smaller release, this sales movie, my first John Sayles movie. And as I said, it's really just one scene. She has five minutes long, maybe a little over. And I think it fits into the movie Lone Star Josh like the Mike Yanagita scene and Fargo does, which is mm. not really. You know, it's kind of an outlier and that either scene could be cut without affecting the story at all. But of course, there are riches to be found there. And there's a lot going on in both scenes. And there's a lot going on with Bunny herself that I think McDormand does have to navigate really quickly, but really convincingly. And so in this scene, we see her manic energy and enthusiasm. We see a glimpse of the rage inside her, just like Jane from Friends with Money. She's recounting a story and explains that her father had to almost pull her off that woman. So she's not afraid to get into a scuffle if someone gets in her face or seems to disagree with her. And then we get even the pain. There is some self-awareness to her, which I also think is what you're getting at a little bit, where she's not just vitriolic and fired up and unleashes, and she's unapologetic in a way that doesn't sometimes actually come across as reflective within the moment itself. It's like she gives these little moments of reflection. And here it's when she says that her father is always saying, I only got my little girl now. She's my lifeline. So this is one of those ways she's expressing her awareness of the fact that she's disappointing, continuing to disappoint the most important man in her life, just like she disappointed Chris Cooper's Sam as a husband. And this is then where the key word comes in, Josh, for me, that is going to come up. Don't do a shot every time you hear me say it throughout this top five. It would be problematic for everyone. But there is a defiance to her. She ultimately dismisses Sam and says, your shit's still in the garage if that's what you came for. And I do think that that sense of defiance is one of the hallmarks of McDormand's performances. Of course, it could be those are the characters she's naturally drawn to. I think that probably does make sense, but it also could be what she is bringing uniquely to these roles. It is a sense of being unapologetic, as we've both said, and it's sort of like what her characters insist on or demand of the other characters in the movie. That's what she demands of us as viewers as well. And here that act of defiance is basically, you're not going to stop me 
from loving football. And you're not going to stop me from being this woman who expresses herself any way she wants, moment to moment. She doesn't need anybody else's approval, and McDormand as an actress doesn't need our approval. And there is something kind of elusive and, and mysterious about that because I don't think we encounter people like that very much in everyday life. And I'll just close by noting that Sales does stack the deck against her a little bit, at least in terms of making it maybe even too comedic. She's wearing a Cowboys jersey and I think a a Houston Oilers hat, you know, and she mentions that a football player, a prospect runs the 40 in 3.4 seconds, which, you know, I'm no draft expert, Josh, but I'm pretty sure no one's run quite that fast yet. But that whole scene really could have been kind of insignificant and McDormand makes it memorable. It's yet another example in this film of the interconnectedness of all these characters. We see another victim of these circumstances, the overwhelmingness of the expectations of a father, of society, and it's all about these secrets, too, that even married people keep from each other, and that's certainly what Lone Star is about. Doctors' reports, coaches' evaluations, highlight reels, psychological profiles, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if they collected stool samples on these boys, had them analyzed. <laughs> All that to pick a football player for your squad. Compared to that, what you know about a person when you get married to them doesn't amount to diddly, does it? I suppose not. You kind of bought yourself a pig and a poke, didn't you, Sam? That whole time that we were first seeing each other, you didn't know that I was tightly wound. It wasn't just you, Bunny. No, it wasn't, was it? I do like defiance as a keyword uh, for this list. Yeah, and it'd be interesting to consider, maybe we'll get into this with Nomadland, how much we think that's part of the alchemy going on in the performance mm-hmm. there, because I think it applies, but in some ways it's it's a very different McDormand performance too. So, oh, and by the way, as you're talking uh, bunny we do get a bunny later in the cohen's canon right big lebowski so you might be onto something there there you go all right my number four uh you know mcdormand's joined the wes anderson um ensemble and i had to go with mrs bishop from moonrise kingdom here at number four his ode to summer camp puppy love Benjamin Britten. She plays uh, the mother to the runaway Susie uh, and also the partner, both in marriage and in a law firm to Bill Murray's Walt. Mrs. Bishop, have we used this word yet, Adam? No nonsense. We we probably has already mm. come up, but, uh, you know, she's got these three little boys plus Susie. Um, she runs their house kind of with a military precision. She carries the bullhorn around uh, to give everyone orders. I think she has that curtness that we also associate with a lot of McDormand performances. But she's not unfeeling. The more we get to learn about Mrs. Bishop, we realize that she's she's fed up with this sad sack husband and has started this uh, affair with Bruce Willis's sheriff. Um, so she has that side to her as well. Um, so the grit is balanced by that relationship. It's balanced by the desire for connection with her daughter, played by Kara Hayward. Um, and, you know, the frustration over not being able to form that with her. I think all of these, this all kind of comes out in this late night talk with Walt um, after they've done some shop talk. They're laying in separate beds, looking up at the ceiling and have this exchange. I'm sorry, Walt. It's not your fault. Which injuries are you apologizing for specifically? Specifically? 
whichever one still hurt. Half of those were self-inflicted. I hope the roof flies off and I get sucked up into space. You'll be better off without me. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. There's some great modulation in this scene, I think, from both of them, but especially McDormand because... We get her opening up a little bit here. She's actually apologizing. I don't know how often we we see that in McDormand characters, but at the same time, she's not relinquishing that toughness at all, right? She even mm-hmm. tells Walt, stop, stop feeling sorry for yourself. Um, so she's only going to go so far, meet him so far here. Um, man, Murray and McDormand, they make such a great pair. He's going to show up actually again in another one of my picks. Um, and, uh, I'll, I'll get to that down the road, but for here at number four, I've got a Mrs. Bishop in Moonrise Kingdom. Mm-hmm. I love this choice. One I definitely considered. I of course adore this movie in my top three Wes Anderson films last I checked. And you're right. There's some real coldness and contempt that exists between husband and wife there. But there are moments like that where we see some real humanity. We see some sympathy. We see at least some warmth. And of course, McDormand embodies all of that. My number four, I already mentioned it. One more scene stealer. It is Dot from 1987's Raising Arizona, the first movie I ever saw her in, even though I wasn't aware of that. She wasn't a big star, certainly. She hadn't had her breakout yet, which was Mississippi Burning a year later, but left a mark on me for sure as Dot. And look, she can do all the incredible, weighty stage and screen work she wants. She can win all the Oscars she wants. When you mention Francis McDormand's name to me, the first thing I'm going to hear in my head is... What's his name? Uh, uh, hi, um, hi, Junior, till we think of a better one. Well, why don't you call him Jason? I just love biblical names. If I had another little boy, I would name him Jason Caleb or Tab. <gasps> oh, he's an angel! He's an angel straight from heaven! I don't know why, Josh. There's something about if I had another little boy, I'd name him Jason Caleb or Tab. And just the way she she rattles it off, she speeds up the names. Even at the end, she's just so (laughs) enthusiastic to say those names. And then he's an angel, an angel straight from heaven. That shriek that does just come out of nowhere. She's already been standing over his bed talking about him for 20 or 30 seconds. But it's as if she's seen him anew all of a sudden and is so overcome with rapture seeing him that she exalts his beauty and she not only exclaims but she covers her eyes as if he's he's blinding in his beauty he's too much to take in of course being high junior the child that holly hunter and nicholas cage have kidnapped and are trying to pass off as their own child it's definitely the most one note performance on my list and probably on your list and probably in the entire McDormand catalog, but it is a classic. And rewatching it today and seeing when Glenn and Dot pull up, her husband Glenn, played by Sam McMurray, like, he's just a dick, right? (laughs) But there's just enough of a hint of, again, genuine warmth and humanity that McDormand brings to Dot, where I at least think, you know, Glenn is probably not going to leave visiting the trailer of the McDonough's here and have any dark nights of the soul. You know, he, he'll he just drink more, right, mm-hmm. and pass out. But Dot might actually have one or two. She might actually have some reflection and larger aspirations, Josh. 
She's she's got a little more passion. I think that's I think that's so. Fair to say, Dot is all that's Dot's a great lead in for my number three actually because it's another comic performance I'm going with here from McDormand. It's as Miss Pettigrew in Miss Pettigrew Lives for a Day. This is a really fun period romantic comedy. Came out in 2008. Most people have probably never heard of it, despite the fact that it stars both McDormand and Amy Adams. Uh, it's set in London just before World War II. Adams plays this daffy American actress who's juggling multiple men while she's trying to make it big on the London stage. And McDormand, the title character, is this recently fired nanny, desperate for work. So she, through some deception, becomes um, uh, the actress's social secretary. They're great together. I mean, Adams just kind of jumps right from a 30s screwball comedy, heightened, of course. And McDormand is kind of doing an anti-Mary Poppins routine here. A little less sugar in her version, as you can imagine. And Adam, you said it when you're talking about Dot. It's the speed that McDormand has really in a lot of her serious dramatic roles, too, um, where her characters are almost always replying almost before the other person has finished talking. Um, she's like on top of the conversation. Um, there's an honesty and a forthrightness, I think, to that. There's no sense of calculation, um, but it, but it's more dexterous. You can't say it's blurting. I don't think her characters really blurt because mm. it has a little more finesse than that. Um, she knows what she wants to say. And she's going to say it, you know, you've, I think you've got that in dot too. And she, she almost, um, you know, she could barely catch up with herself. Speed, of course, crucial to comedy. Right. And so, uh, yeah. I think it works really well here for this performance, which is going to stand out from all the others I mentioned, I think really stands out in her filmography overall, but I wanted to include it for that reason, uh, just to show that comedic side. Uh, I should also note, she gets some really nice scenes here. I don't think we consider her as much of a romantic actress, maybe hasn't been given a lot of those opportunities, but uh, Kieran Hines has a supporting part here and they become sort of this tentative couple, some very romantic scenes uh, between them. So a little bit of an unexpected performance here from Francis hmm. McDormand in Miss Pettigrew lives for a day. That scarf, if I say looks perfect on you. Well, thank you. It was a present. No, I think it's the most beautiful thing I've ever worn. Now, the flatterer has been outflattered. Sorry? It's one of mine. The design. Last year for Mimi Kuchu. My goodness. So that is a film, Josh, that I never did bother to see. Recommended by you, it sounds like? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, temper your expectations for the genre that it's in, especially in light of some of her um, more intense work. But I think uh, if that synopsis sounds good to you, I think you'll enjoy it. Mm. Well, we're talking about the speed of some of these characters so far. Definitely does, as you noted, apply to Dot and to Bunny. We're going to slow things down considerably. We're going to get more serious here with my number three pick. And we're also going to slow down all the goodwill that's existed between us up to this point oh, in here the it show comes. Here it and comes. all the agreement. But you knew it was coming. At number three, I've got Mildred from a little 2017 film called Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Only three? And yeah, well, you know what? After writing down a few notes about it, Josh, I considered moving it up. So <laughs> I'll leave it here for now. And I was thinking about this today and how to have this conversation and express my appreciation for the movie without it turning into a referendum on what is very clearly such a divisive movie that I haven't seen since it came out. But mind you, based on that viewing, I'm not backtracking at all in my appreciation for it. And in fact, I'm even more entrenched in that appreciation. You might 
say, Josh, I'm I'm defiant about Mm. it. And I think that that is fitting because whether you want to use that word or unapologetic, unrepentant, impertinent, whatever it is, that's what three billboards is. Take your pick from those adjectives. And I think not only the film, but Martin McDonough, the writer, director and Francis McDormand's work in it. And I do want to be very careful here to not come across as glib, like, oh, you know, boy, Josh, you just couldn't handle Martin McDonough and three billboards. You know, it's just so edgy and provocative and challenging. No, but I do think it truly made people uncomfortable in a way that really good art can and should. And that resulted in some really visceral, instinctive reactions that maybe made real reflection on it challenging. Because some people just said, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of out on this. And I also think, me personally, that A lot of the criticism against it is reductive, and it simplifies scenarios and characters in a way that I don't think for a second Martin McDonough intended to, and I base that solely on how I interpret what I see on screen and the fundamental questions it poses about the limitations of empathy and what redemption and justice truly mean for individuals and and for society with all of its complicated moral messiness. And and these quandaries are, as it turns out, completely consistent with McDonough's other stage and screen work that I'm familiar with. Yeah, I think that that is a reality. That's at least my sense of it. So where does McDormand fit into all of that? Well, her her defiance, Mildred, to say that she's defiant is obviously an understatement. But if you were summing it up with a line, it's you will not stop me from seeking justice for me and for my daughter. And I could point to the clip with the priest who comes to her house and is sitting with her son to counsel her about taking the billboards down. And that monologue that she gets, that's about two minutes long, minute and a half, maybe and her resolute takedown of him and his hypocrisy, where by the end, I noticed Josh, not only is she slowing down, but When she's the most pointed and the most biting and the most hurtful and on the attack, she doesn't get more agitated or more expressive. She actually just gets more still and she gets more focused. And by the end, her face being the only part of that that is really moving with her words. Father, just like those Crips and just like those Bloods, you're culpable because you joined the gang, man. I don't care if you never did shit, you never saw shit, you never heard shit. You join the gang, you're culpable. And when a person is culpable to alter boy or any kind of boy, because I know you guys didn't really narrow that down, then you kind of forfeit the right to come into my house and say anything about me or my life or my daughter or my billboards. So why don't you just finish up your tea there, father, and get the f*** out of my kitchen. The turn it takes there, too. You can't really see it because it's a visual cue by the priest, a reaction about halfway through. But the turn it takes, Josh, I do think is indicative of the movie overall. I imagine a good portion of Americans listening to her Bloods and Crips example and how if you join a gang, you're guilty by association. If they do something wrong, you're a member, whether you were the one who did it or not. And people are probably nodding their heads just like the priest does and thinking, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But when you're talking about so-called upstanding members of society like this priest, even though the circumstances, as she notes, are largely exactly the same, well, then it makes some people probably feel a, a little different or it does challenge that. And 
that for me, Josh, is an example of what this movie does that I like a lot, which is it it kind of gets you comfortable in thinking things are trending a certain direction, even if it's discomfort. And then it pulls the rug out from under you. And an even more blatant example, my favorite scene in the movie, my favorite McDormand moment in the movie is an early one in the police station with her and Woody Harrelson having a confrontation. Tensions have really been building between them, him as the chief of police. And you just feel like, okay, I know exactly where this scene is going. Each participant is trying to out smug the other one being really condescending and kind of expressing their anger in as cool a way as they can. And then out of nowhere, Woody Harrelson's character coughs blood in her face. And it's so startling. It's not even clear what happened, despite the fact that we literally watched him cough blood in her face. And, you know, it doesn't matter how good of a person that you are. Someone suddenly does that to you. You might react very angrily, (laughs) instinctively. And she already feels extreme anger towards this person. But what's her reaction? After the shock of it, it's it's pure compassion. It's it's actually motherly. He's almost apologizing like a little boy who's done something wrong and she consoles him. And he's tried to suggest this position of authority over her as chief at his police station. And he's questioning her. And in that moment, he's just so vulnerable. And so I know that that whiplash for many was just too much. But for me, it's the kind of smashing together of of questions and ideas and imperfect human behavior that I respond to and certainly responded to here. And then with all that said, Josh, there are just some really funny moments in it, too, that McDormand gives us that are pure performance. When that scene begins, Sam Rockwell's idiot officer walks out of the room and the chief comes in and the look McDormand gives Harrelson. All he can say back to her is, don't give me that look. He knows exactly what she's thinking. We all know exactly what she's thinking. And it's hilarious. And it's just the kind of really loaded patronizing smirk that McDormand can nail. Well, as you can imagine, I have I haven't revisited three billboards myself, so I can't bring any fresh complaints towards it. I do remember my my reaction wasn't you know it wasn't the one you were describing. I I wasn't offended or provoked. I, for me, the ideas definitely were interesting. Ones that I'm interested in myself. I think it was just misjudged material and and didn't just didn't seem to take place in the real world. And I think the Bloods and Crips speech is an example of that. That that woman is gonna like bring up that example at that time. But that all means, Adam, that it's not, for me, it's not McDormand's fault. You know, my, my complaints, it's right. more with the material. I think she does what she can with it, um, brings a lot of the qualities we've been discussing. It definitely falls in line, this performance and this role, really, with some of the other performances she's given. And hey, good enough to win an Oscar. So what do I know? Well, we've already pretty much spoiled our number one pick, but there's still suspense over that number two slot. That's up next, along with thoughts on Nomadland and a new film spotting poll asking listeners to pick their favorite movie of 2020. Stay with us. Yeah, man, I got a right to talk about what I see. Way too much is going wrong right in front of me. You can't rule me. You can't rule me. You can't take my money and try to rule me too. Yeah, you might expect me to follow, but I 
know what it is. It could be life, it could be death. It might be a dream, I might be imagining you, you might be imagining me, it could be purgatory or a glitch in the simulation that we're both in. I don't know. So I decided a while ago to sort of give up and stop trying to make sense of things altogether because the only way to really live in this is to embrace the fact that nothing matters. Well, then what's the point of living? Well, we kind of have no choice but to live. That's a clip from Palm Springs. Maybe not for us personally, Josh, the best film of the year, but certainly one of the movies of the year, especially as all of us, like the film stars Andy Samberg and Christian Milati, have felt trapped in a Groundhog Day-style time loop since March. Pretty accurate, I think. Yeah, it resonates a bit. And I think one of the the most talked about movies, for sure. I remember when this came out, people just, you know... <laughs> Just the way it did resonate with our experience helped it a lot, but we both liked it too. I'd say we're both positive, right? There are good things about it. Yeah, Positive, not a top 10 movie for me and doesn't sound like for you either. It may in fact be some film spotting listeners top choice though. And we'll find that out because the new film spotting poll has us looking ahead to our top 10 movies of 2020 countdown is just a couple weeks away. So we're asking. What's your favorite film of 2020? And this is always hard to do. It's always hard to narrow it down to five to eight choices that we feel like really do encapsulate the best of the year in cinema that will probably be the most likely contenders from our audience based on our own thoughts, critical response, maybe some box office, the feedback we get from listeners. And then, of course, this year, Josh, 2020 comes along. It upends everything. It's hard to determine what movies most people did watch. You don't have access to a lot of the streaming numbers. We don't have the box office totals at our disposal. And so many films came out really in some kind of very limited theatrical run and or screening on demand, some kind of virtual release. So very tough to do. I'm not sure that the choices we landed on necessarily sum up the best of the year, but it gives us a starting point. You can, as always, consider it another deeply flawed film spotting poll. I think one of the factors Sam looked at, at least when he was working on this poll, was a variety list that was published last month, most watched VOD titles of 2020, and that was a survey of home video viewers. So for whatever this is worth, the top five there were Hamilton, which was on Disney+, Plus, Borat 2 from Amazon Prime, My Spy, also Amazon Prime, Extraction on Netflix, and then Phineas and Ferb, the movie. <laughs> On Disney Plus. So I don't know if we're going to be offering all of those in our poll. Are we offering any of those options, Adam? No, I don't think we are. And in fact, I've only seen one of those. Of course, Hamilton, you saw Hamilton and Borat 2. Would I be correct, Josh? Yes. And and two of those, I don't think I had heard of until I just saw them listed there. <laughs> I concur. So here are the six titles we ultimately landed on. Palm Springs does make the list, directed by Max Barbacow. It's available exclusively on Hulu. Number 26, Josh, on that list of most streamed titles. Another option we're giving here is Spike Lee's Defy Bloods, which was exclusively available on Netflix. Now, Defy Bloods, that won our mid-year best of the year so far poll back in June. So that was kind of an easy inclusion here on that most streamed titles list. Defy Bloods landed at number 15. Kelly Reichert's first cow also making the list. And it has to because, Josh, am I right that when we did that best of the year so far show back in June or July that we both had it at number one? Definitely in our top fives. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right about that. Okay, so we'll see whether or not 
first cow is still the leader in the clubhouse as we get to our top tens. We've certainly been doing a lot of viewing and have a lot more left to go, but that film is available VOD after a brief theatrical run that happened right before the shutdown. Not the last movie I saw in a theater pre-COVID, Josh, but I think the penultimate one. Yep, in the before times. Another option in the poll, Charlie Kaufman's I'm Thinking of Ending Things, that one also exclusively available on Netflix. Then we'll also be giving the option of Eliza Hittman's Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. Now this one, exclusively on HBO Max. I think it's available for purchase, though, on most platforms. Finally, maybe Sam just recognizing David Fincher's status as a premier director A newer release, one talked about on last week's show, recommended by both of us, though much more strongly by me. We are talking about Mank, which is another film available exclusively on Netflix. And if none of those sound right to you, if the movie that is currently occupying the top slot on your best of 2020 films list, you can write it in. You can choose other. And we're expecting that this will be the likely winner of this poll. In years past, there were times, Josh, where we had that number one film or the one that our listeners thought was the best in the running. But as we said, with all of the crazy circumstances this year, I think others going to take it. It's just a matter of which other choice is going to get more votes so far. David Byrne's American Utopia is getting some write-ins, The Vast of Night, The Trial of the Chicago 7 by Aaron Sorkin, and also Steve McQueen's Lover's Rock, plus The Sound of Metal, recommended by me last week, a golden brick shortlister. So you can vote in that poll now at filmspotting.net. We will share the results and your comments during our top 10 of 2020 shows in a couple of weeks. Next week, Adam, we're going to submit our ballots. It's actually time next week for the Chicago Film Critics Awards. I hope that you are ready. How's that ballot coming along? Is it in good shape? (laughs) Well, it's so funny. I told Sam this last night on Slack that I've been really patting myself on the back for all of the viewing I've been doing. A lot of multiple movie nights, fitting in a lot of things, and really not going a day without seeing at least one movie. I've been very diligent, Josh, and my feeling has been that I'm making progress, that I'm I'm seeing things I should be seeing that may be in contention or at least are in contention for some others as best films of the year, and whether I write them off or not, at least I can say I've considered them. And then just last night, I see on Twitter a list of the best films of 2010 from our friend and former film spotting SVU colleague, Allison Wilmore, a great critic. And the first four titles scrolling down, <laughs> 10 through 7, I haven't seen. And there was at least one more. I think half of Allison's list, Josh, I haven't seen yet. Yikes. Now I'm afraid to check out our list. And we're running out of time. I mean, that happens That happens every year. We're going we're gonna to work through this, though, together next week on the show, Adam. We're going to pull out our ballots. We'll compare where we're leaning in the major categories and, uh, you know, supporting and lead actors. I think we'll talk cinematography, score, probably animated films and documentaries, and then maybe a little screenplay talk. And so maybe that'll help us bring some clarity to where yeah. we're at. Um, because yeah, it's, I, w- I work from this massive document that I start in January that kind of has, you know, the, the rotating constantly churning list of top 10 potentials. And right. then also these categories in our Chicago film critics awards voting. And then the categories for our, you know, rap party awards we like to give on the show. So it's all in there in this big jumble and it's time to start making sense of that. So we're going to do it next week on the show. I am so jealous of your preparation, Josh, because every year I start 
with that intention. And every year, maybe about a month into the year, I abandon it. I so never you, you at least follow create through. a document, I hope. Yeah, no, I do. Okay. Or I start making a <laughs> private list on Letterboxd and I'll rank all the movies. And if it fits a certain category, I'll add a note. I'll say best performance or yeah. moving moment or opening scene or whatever it might be. And then at some point, I just start adding movies to the list and <laughs> throw out here, here we everything are. I intended to do. Yeah, and here we are. And I feel like to some extent, I'm kind of starting from scratch. And I've just decided that, you know what, that's going to be my process. It almost isn't until I see the ballot and I see all of the mm. options that my brain really does do something. There's there's a little bit of a switch that's flipped. And all of a sudden, the movies that I feel like should emerge yeah. and rise to the top do. They yeah, do well, throughout that process. Certainly but, a strategy. They, you know, you want yeah. your picks to be ones that had lasting impact on you, right? Absolutely. So I think this is the first year we're going to do this type of show. We've always devoted a little bit of time to reflecting on our ballots and the wins, but I think it's usually after the Chicago Film Critics Association tallies all the votes and announces the winners. And we don't get a chance so much to actually discuss on the show where our votes went and why. And Sam or you, Josh, had the great idea to actually just kind of turn it into content. Let's make it into a show where we get to reflect on the best of the year, but also help ourselves out by going through these categories and talking them out on air. Who knows? You and your advice, Josh, your insights might actually alter my ballot and I'll get it right for once. So 19 categories, I think, ultimately, the CFCA anoints. We are not going to do all 19 Categories next week on the show, we'll probably do eight to 10, but I think it'll be fun. Also on next week's show, we'll play Massacre Theater, which is always fun. The part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. In case you missed our last performance, here's a bit of it. It's good to see you, sweetheart. You contemptible pig. I remain celibate for you. I stood at the back of a cathedral in celibacy for you. Incredibly, incredibly easy one to identify, I think, Adam. Plus, with all the clues you gave, how are, how are entries looking? Do you know? Yeah, entries are pretty good. I did give too many hints. And here's another one. If you're in Chicago or have oh, any on. attachment to Chicago, Just surely you should know it. It is, of course, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> if you know what film we massacred, because it's not Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Email the title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, December 14th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on next week's show. The next picture show, our sister podcast, has part two this week of their Manking of Kane double feature. Yes, they're pairing David Fincher's Mank with Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. And then next week, it's a new pairing and... Wow, I am excited for this one. If I could just fit in Wolf Walkers with another John Sayles movie and one I love, The Secret of Rowan Inish. Oh, this is this is a brilliant pairing. And I think, didn't Sam just watch Secret of Rowan Inish recently? Yeah, and I think he, it. He, yep. Yeah, maybe rewatched it and he, he just loved it. So that should be a great show. NPS hosts, you know them, Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. One way that you can support 
The work we do here at Film Spotting is by joining the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. It just takes $5 a month. You get ad free episodes, you get early show downloads, you get a merch discount, and you do get monthly bonus episodes. We've got one we've got to knock out here soon, Josh. Movie directors doing TV. We'll have some discussion about that. And you also get access to our monthly trivia spotting events. As we are recording this, we're just a couple days away from Trivia Spotting 5 subsequent movie film trivia game and we've got the highest number of participants we've ever had we've got a really good lineup of guests as usual and i can't wait it's been four weeks and i'm ready to go josh yeah have you been um doing any extra education any research kind of boning up on any topics no no okay me either so i'm gonna wing it that seems to have worked so well for me. We'll be stellar as usual. <laughs> yeah, I will lose for the fifth trivia spotting in a row. When we get to 1,000 patrons and we are inching close, we will do another virtual screening that will be available for free to all of our family members. So you get to hang out with us and watch a movie together over Zoom. And we do want to remind you that you can get an annual membership. Instead of paying per month, you can get the whole year in one lump payment, and you get a 10% discount with that basically one month free. And Josh, we have some new family members we want to highlight this week, including Hernan Eppelman, Chris Osterndorf, Bjorn Williamson, Stephen Cherry, Michael Sachs, Kyle, Trevor Pickerskill, Jackson Goldberg, Brian Jury, William Evans, Manny O, Paige Osborne, and Skuozen. I don't know if that's a, a surname or what, Josh, but Skuozen is our family member. Welcome all of you, including Scrooge, and thanks so much, everybody. And if you would like to join the ranks of the Film Spotting family, you can do that at patreon.com slash filmspotting. Bert, do you know me? Know you? <laughs> you kidding? I've been looking all over town trying to find you. I saw your car piled into that tree down there, and I thought maybe you... Hey, your mouth's bleeding. Are you sure you're all right? What you... <laughs> My mouth's bleeding, Bert! My mouth's bleeding! Zuzu's pedals. Zuzu. There they are! Somehow, Josh, there are heartless people out there in the world just like you who voted against Zuzu's pedals. They said, Zuzu, take your box of pedals and throw them in the incinerator. That Christmas movie, the greatest of all time, it's gone forever. You know what? You know what, Adam? I trust those people. Those are people of conviction. Uh-huh. Um, they can stand in the face of the angry mob and make mm. a choice they believe in. Yeah. Yeah, except, you know what, your beloved choice, as someone else is going to point out, should have been discarded on a technicality. Oh, TV? So, well, we'll see, Josh. Don't, okay. don't jump ahead. A couple weeks back, we gave you this Christmas movie deathmatch. One Christmas movie from each decade. And, and Sam, I like in our notes here, has movie in quotes. So he knows where we're going. Mm. One Christmas movie from each decade going back to the 40s. You had to pick one. All the other ones disappear forever. The options were... 1940s, It's a Wonderful Life, 1950s, White Christmas for all those Bing Crosby lovers out there, 1960s, A Charlie Brown Christmas, 1970s, Rankin and Bass, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. We jump up to the 80s with A Christmas Story, No Not, Christmas Vacation, 1990s, Home Alone or 2000s, Elf, also not on the list, Die Hard, and let's just not open that can of worms. Josh, how did this poll come out? Well, Rankin and Bass's Santa Claus is coming to town, 2%. Probably not a surprise there in last place. White Christmas with 5%. Elf, this surprised me a little bit, Adam. 10% of the vote uh, didn't fare too well in this poll. 
Next, Home Alone for the 90s kids. Only 13% of the vote. I think, Adam, we have all won if the result of this poll is that copies (laughs) of Home Alone have been burnt. Next comes A Christmas Story with 16% of the vote. Then, yes, my beloved Charlie Brown Christmas. I love seeing it here in second place. We did what we could. 17% of the vote, but winning it is It's a Wonderful Life, a very good movie I like quite a bit. It got 37% of the vote. No, sorry, you threw it in the fire. No one can ever watch it, except it won. So actually, I guess you're okay, Josh. It's all we can watch and and come to hate (laughs) it. That's it. Well, that's all we're going to watch anyway for the next three weeks. Ian T. McFarlane says, I can't even approach considering how I'd vote for this. Nostalgia is one thing, but Christmas nostalgia, that is not to be trifled with. And just reading these multiple staples from my childhood makes me feel like I've committed a crime against myself for theoretically choosing one over the others. You guys are definitely on the naughty list for putting me through this. Here's Brian Pills. No other Christmas movie chokes me up like the last scene from It's a Wonderful Life. For me, that scene is about rediscovering our connectedness to others at moments of our deepest despair, as well as acknowledging that we often have a cohort of admirers and well-wishers looking over us, even though we don't always see them. And that's some of what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. (laughs) Kim W. says, a Charlie Brown Christmas, Josh, is a TV show. Mm. Of course, Kim also says, but I don't care. It wins. Everything else can die in a fire. I have been watching a Charlie Brown Christmas every year on the night it is broadcast, accompanied by my childhood Snoopy Stuffy since I was two years old. I am now 50. I have opinions about this, and I love opinions is in all caps. Wow. You know what? It's not really TV, Adam. You know why? Christmas magic. Ah, It's made it a movie. It counts. Okay, I'll buy it. Josh Ashen Miller here. I voted for Charlie Brown, so I guess that means It's a Wonderful Life is now in the incinerator. Are the clips still on YouTube? Because I really need that scene of the bank run at Bailey Brothers Building and Loan so I can keep teaching my class about the Great Depression. I don't know. Have we been uh, asked about this technicality before, Adam? No, I don't know. I don't know. Good luck with that, Josh. Reed says, I can't imagine a world without a Christmas story, a movie I really do love, and at least in terms of this poll, was my number two pick. Many of these films films factor into family's Christmas traditions, and mine is no different. Every year until us kids moved out, my family would decorate our Christmas tree, drink eggnog, and eat pizza, all while watching A Christmas Story. Aside from being one of the most quotable movies of all time, it manages to balance mildly vulgar humor with a warm, sweet story that captures the childhood feeling of desperately wanting a special Christmas gift, and then actually getting it. This is one of those rare films from your life that's tough to be objective about because it's so meaningful for you and your family. I do remember the first time I saw A Christmas Story. Would have been a kid, maybe about Ralphie's age, actually. And I remember feeling so betrayed at the end of the movie. Sorry, spoilers here, if you haven't seen A Christmas Story, when he actually goes out and within like two minutes of firing the BB gun, he almost does shoot his eye out. Like I remember feeling like, Oh, this is, this is a movie that's speaking to me yeah. and it's, it's, gonna it's confirming you. the, yeah, the stupidity of all these adults who don't listen to you and they don't understand the things you need, the true essentials in life. And then he basically goes out and validates all their fear and anxiety by almost shooting his eye out. But you know what? I've come to really appreciate it. Josh, I forgave 
Ralphie and A Christmas Story. It wouldn't be a Christmas movie without a lesson, Adam. I think that's what we've all learned here. (laughs) We also heard from Albert Malafront, who says, as a 90s kid, I was happy to reject Hook along with you two, despite nostalgia. But I'm voting for Home Alone on this one just to spite you both. Yes, the plot of Home Alone defies logic at every turn. But what about the score? What about the awesome opening title card? Also, James Bond ripped off Home Alone in the Skyfall Climax because booby-trapping a house is so fun. You can throw Hook in the fire, but don't you dare drag poor Kevin through the mud. You want to say this, Adam? You filthy animals. There you go. Nicely done. (laughs) So this one is fighting you, Josh, a little bit more than me because I don't loathe Home Alone, but I also have not seen Home Alone since, since it came out. And Josh, I'm just saying that I have no plans to revisit it. But oh. at the time, you know, I thought it was fairly amusing. I was I was young. Sufferable. <laughs> I love your disdain for Home Alone. Kevin White says, I'll go to bat for White Christmas, even though it's probably my fourth or even fifth favorite on the list, because I do think it has a bad rap from cinephiles these days. It's definitely schmaltzy and hokey and doesn't really make any sense. And I mean, come on, the whole movie is predicated on us feeling sorry for a retired army general because he owns a beautiful ski resort in Vermont. But my wife reintroduced me to it years ago, and it's beautifully shot in VistaVision, and the songs are catchy. It's also a great introduction to Bing Crosby's musical buddy comedies, and Danny Kaye has absolutely breakneck comic time that keeps the film moving along. There are also some very weird musical numbers and physical comedy, and who doesn't like very weird musical numbers <laughs> along with physical comedy? Now, Josh, I'm going to challenge you a little bit. Do you know who directed Bing Crosby and White Christmas? Well, uh, from now till the end of time, I'm just always going to answer that question with Michael Curtiz. Well done. Well done. Ding, really? ding, ding. Okay. Yeah. See? You when got you it. Fa- when you fail in public... During an episode of Trivia Spotting, this is what will happen to you. You learned a holiday lesson. Exactly. Our last comment here comes from Alan N. You've pretty much recreated my annual viewing list. The only additions would be Rudolph from 64, The Grinch from 66. Yes, check, check, Alan. And any iteration of The Christmas Carol. My personal favorite is the 1970 musical version Scrooge with Albert Finney as Ebenezer and Alec Guinness as a creepy Jacob Marley. My dad loved that Albert Finney Scrooge. I remember him introducing me to it, telling me the story of the ghosts, and I love it too. Thank you to everyone for their feedback. We hope you enjoy some of these titles here over the holidays, and we remind you that you can vote in our Best Film of 2020 poll now at filmspotting.net. My husband worked at the USG mine in Empire, and I worked in human resources there for a few years. That was my last full-time job. I did a lot of part-time jobs. I cashiered at the Empire Store. I was a substitute teacher at the school for five years. Didn't the Empire Mine shut down and then all of the resident workers had to relocate? Yeah, about a year ago. Wow. So when do you need to get back to work? Now? A title card at the beginning of Chloe Zhao's Nomadland explains that in 2011, a gypsum manufacturer closed its plant in Empire, Nevada after 88 years. By July, the Empire zip code was discontinued. In the film, Frances McDormand plays one of the casualties of that closing, houseless but not homeless, as she says she lives alone in a van, eventually making her way to a community of nomads in the Arizona desert. Nomadland is officially a 2020 film. Josh got a ton of acclaim 
and won the grand prize at the Venice Film Festival. Most people aren't going to get a chance to see it, though, until early next year. But it did spark our top five this week, Francis McDormand performances, and we wanted to give it at least a couple of minutes, something for people to chew on, I guess, as they anticipate the movie. Chloe Zhao's previous film, The Writer from 2018, was one of the most critically acclaimed films of its year. I had it at number three on my list. Michael Phillips, our friend from the Tribune, had it as number one. It did not make your top ten, but you were an admirer, and it was a runner-up for our Golden Brick Prize that year. So, fair to say, really looking forward to Nomadland. Previously said it on the show, when it played at the Chicago Film Festival, we had it as our number one most anticipated movie of the fest. I think at least for me, Josh, I probably did sit down to watch Nomadland with the sense that it had to be my number one film of the year. And maybe that's unfair Hmm. baggage to hang on a movie as you're about to watch it. What was your experience with it? Yeah, I mean, it probably is unfair, but it's it's difficult for us not to do that. I think, as you said, you laid the groundwork. You know, this is a filmmaker we've been following and um, working with an actress that we're both big fans of and an interesting story. So you're going to have high expectations. I don't I don't think that damaged my experience of the film, though. I think if it slips, these things are still jostling around. But if it slips outside of my top 10, it's only because I've had a few like unexpected revelations in the last probably two weeks of other things that I've seen for the first time. So we have to allow the possibility for something like that to happen too, right? If we're going to, if we're going to kind of pencil something in as a likely favorite, we also have to allow room for a surprise to come our way. And when that happens, that's an exciting thing too. So I think this is very interesting in terms of Zhao's filmography. Her first film, Songs My Brothers Taught Me, I caught at Sundance. I forget which year that was and definitely showed a film filmmaker with great promise and it fits within this sort of genre she's others have done as well but working with non-professional actors incorporating their lives into the story at hand i think this is a step beyond that in working with mcdormand and so maybe mm-hmm. right now what what we should just do in the context of our top five is is talk briefly how you found McDormand's performance working within that sort of venue, Mm -hmm. you know, where she's on screen a fair amount of the time with non-professionals in this film. Yeah, she is. And she really does dominate the movie. I mean, she's probably in just about every frame of it. And I'm excited that we're going to talk about this movie in more detail and depth, hopefully, when it comes out in February. And it might come up, obviously, over the course of our top 10 shows, especially as we hear from guests. The first half of this movie I definitely felt like I was watching for sure my number one movie of the year. And nothing really dramatic happened to change that, Josh. But there are some lingering feelings with me that I'm eager to actually just kind of throw out and get your take on and consider as I further think about this movie and reflect on it. And you're talking about McDormand. It's not that I dislike the performance, but that defiance aspect that we've talked about, that word that keeps coming up for me in the course of our top five list I'm going to live life on my terms and her not needing anyone's help or a normal job or another lover or another house. While that's something I generally really respond to, obviously, in McDormand's work, for some reason here, I struggled to connect with her. There was a distance I felt with her character that was different than Hmm. I felt 
with, say, Brady Jandro in The Writer. And I can't really put my finger on that because other than gender, I probably have just as much or more in common with Fern in Nomadland than I do with a cowboy who can't compete on the rodeo circuit anymore. I think another part of that, at least one I have to give some credence to, is this neorealist kind of conceit. And she is here working with real people, as you said, non-professional actors playing themselves or versions of themselves. But I locked in with Brady and the writer and to some extent watching Nomadland, I spent a good chunk of it. I'm just going to admit, Josh, going, hey, hey, that's Frances McDormand. Does anybody see Frances McDormand? She's she's just walking around. Oh, there's David Strathairn, too. They're they're just walking around among these regular folks. I do think that's maybe a potential challenge of an approach like this where you you commit to this approach, you commit to this aesthetic and the film really does then rely, though, on a star who kind of feels out of place to me mm-hmm. amidst all the other non-professionals. At least that was something I was aware of. Now, will I be as aware of that on a second viewing? Maybe not. Yeah, let's let's talk about both of those things because I think they're good and important. And McDormand, uh, you know, Fern here, she's a particularly tricky character, I think, in general. I think mm-hmm. she stands apart from a lot of these other roles we've been discussing. Uh, She's cool, but she's not unfriendly. She's private, but she's not closed off entirely. But there is Mm -hmm. that distance she puts up. That's an essential part of who she is. And so I think that's an element of the performance, maybe not exactly what you're talking about in terms of working with non-professionals, but just to this character. You know, the, the humanity that we've been talking about that we find even in some of her most difficult characters, and I don't think you describe Fern as difficult, the reason it may not be as noticeable here is because this is primarily a listening performance. There are so many scenes here, and this goes to the neorealism thing you're you're talking about, of Fern sitting with a character and uh, who's who's riffing a non-professional actor riffing on their own experiences, telling their stories, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's just a very different type of performance. I don't think I had quite as much. Once I realized what Jia was doing, that she was going to return to this mix or, or, or working mostly with non-professionals, I don't think I had quite as much of a problem of saying, oh, it's Frances McDormand, she's sticking out. But it made it more difficult to connect with Fern because Fern was spending so much time trying to connect, and McDormand as Fern, with mm-hmm. these other people on screen. So that's one element to it. Yeah. I think if there's one thing that I'm still thinking about, it's more related to the neorealism aspect you bring up because Zhao... Um, born and raised in Beijing, her three films set in America, deeply American topics and situations. And I think that has given her, that's been a strength for her mostly, right? She kind of has a traveler's acute curiosity. This time around, I think it's because we do meet so many different people on the road and it's part of the nature of the the story, right? These are, right. These are travelers. So you're not going to stick with anyone for a long period of time. But it did feel a little bit more like a tourist experience than Zhao's other films did for me. Again, it's partly the nature of of this lifestyle. They're just passing through. But at times, I think of like the piano player we meet like mm-hmm. very briefly. It, he almost felt more like a souvenir. Does that does that make sense? Then um, it absolutely does. Then like Brady or Brady's family in the rider. And again, I'm wrestling with: is that just something I need to adjust to because this is entirely Mm -hmm. different milieu, or is this sort of mode of filmmaking Zhao is working in not quite as effective for a story like this? 
yeah, I think you've set that dilemma up very well. And it's one, like I said, I look forward to giving some more thought to when we review that movie in February when it gets finally a wider release. That's Nomadland. We're going to get back now to our countdown of our top five favorite Francis McDormand performances. We're at number two, Josh. What's your choice? Olive in Olive Kittredge, which is an HBO adaptation of the 2009 Pulitzer Prize winning novel by Elizabeth Strout. This movie is directed by Lisa Cholodenko, who also made the very good The Kids Are All Right. And, you know, it's a book. Debbie's been telling me to read this book, Olive Kittredge, for a few years now. I finally got to it this summer, and uh, it's fantastic. It's just not the cheeriest story, but just deeply immersive vignettes of this town, this seaside town in Maine and the main character's life. And I don't know if anyone else could have been as well-suited to play Olive Kittredge as McDormand. She's a terse, middle-aged math teacher in this town in Maine. She doesn't put up with any crap from her students, from her husband, who's actually a pretty nice guy, from her son, from her neighbors. She basically blurts out, this will sound familiar, right, to some of the things we've been describing in these other characters. Olive blurts out whatever is on her mind, and it's the sort of honesty that's both helpful and hurtful. It's kind of like a seesaw where where Olive is like the best thing to happen to one of the side characters in their day, or she's the worst thing to happen just because of who she is and when she meets them. What's interesting about McDormand taking this part, though, is that she doubles down, and maybe this shouldn't come as a surprise. She really doubles down on the cantankerousness um, that is on the page. And Olive might be one of her least likable, for whatever that word is worth, characters. I think she's also probably one of her most realistic. I think those things are probably tied up together. And yet, at the same time, you know, beneath all the eye rolls Olive gives or these harumphs or these sharp quips, sometimes she'll even, you know, direct those towards little kids. McDormand finds that that inner and particularly midlife distress, I think. You know, we talk about McDormand doing things that are not a lot of uh, women actors are allowed to do. Here, she's just digging into midlife distress for this average woman, also the latent depression that she's struggling with, and all of that, you know, revealing how all of that makes Olive who she is. And I think we really get a, a, a good sense of that in this one scene where Olive and her husband, who's played by Richard Jenkins, they're, they're discussing whether their grown son is going to be happy now that he's getting married. What do you think of Dr. Sue, Kevin? Ollie, don't put him on a spot like that. He's filled his psychology. He's seen all the types. Do you think she'll make Christopher happy? I don't know. It depends on what Christopher wants. I don't know what he wants. What do you think he wants, Henry? I think he wants to be loved. So it doesn't matter if she's not nice. She's nice, and she loves him very much. Well, the two don't always go together. Uh, I'm not very nice to you, Henry. That's <laughs> true. And are you happy? <laughs> Happy as a clam, Ollie. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> happy, happy, happy. Again, it's the the modulation, I think, that McDormand is doing here. She's expressing commitment, but then she's got to undercut that too. And, and that's, that's how Olive really feels. There's more difficult honesty here. The only other thing I want to mention is this is the other pick that does feature Bill Murray, which came as a surprise to me. I didn't realize he was in this. He shows up for a supporting part at the very end. And I'm not going to spoil that spoil the context, uh, but basically it's later in Olive's life. So they're both older and they they really, as actors, get to embrace the opportunity to kind of explore that period of life in this witty, but also vulnerable way. So McDormand and Murray, they, they need a movie, I think, that's kind of all their own. 
mm-hmm. where it's just about them. But for now, we've got Olive Kittredge. I, I highly recommend it. And yes, I, I'm going to be boring and expected here. Please read the book first. I, I think that's the way to go. <laughs> Well, there's no chance of that. I haven't even seen the movie first before doing this list. Miss Pettigrew, Olive Kittredge, you're stumping me here, Josh. And also, I guess you missed the part where I laid down the rule that there could be no choices that have her character's name in the title. It's as simple as that. Oh, I missed that one. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. So you've taken us off the beaten path. I'm going to put us on much more familiar ground here with my number two choice. And I know I said earlier that the line I'll probably always think of first when I think about Francis McDormand is one of Dot's lines, thinking about Jason Caleb or Tab, but it might actually be, don't do drugs. The famous line that Elaine Miller says, Francis McDormand playing a version of Cameron Crowe's real-life mother in this semi-autobiographical or just autobiographical film that I adore so much. And of course, that's the funny line that if you're looking at any list of The best quotes from Almost Famous, that's probably going to be number one or at least in the top five. And the one I'm about to reference, this McDormand moment, Josh, probably doesn't make the top 25. And yet it is, for me, one of the key lines and moments in the film. And it's all because of the way McDormand delivers it. It's in the car. They're together. It's Zoe Deschanel as Anita, William's older sister, in the front seat with McDormand's Elaine. And... William in the back seat is just discovering that he's actually like two grades ahead or something and is really younger than all the boys in his class. And she says, your dad was so proud of you. She's trying to reassure him. Your dad was so proud of you. He knew you were an accelerated child, which prompts this. What about me? You are rebellious and ungrateful of my love. I don't know about you, Josh, but I've definitely had a moment or two as a father where one child has asked me something or I'm saying something in praise of a child, kind of not thinking about the other kid in the room who then says, yeah, well, what about me? And even if you don't have something nice to say, you come up with something nice to say or you find a way to just get around it completely and change the subject. But of course, that's not what Elaine Miller does, right? That line reading, you are rebellious and ungrateful of my love. It is it is so disarming in a way that McDormand is just so good at. She's blunt. She's direct. She's not hurtful in her tone, right? There's nothing aggressive about it. It's not as if she's using this as an opportunity in my mind to really inflict pain on her daughter. In fact, she's a little bit regretful. I think you can, you can kind of hear that in her voice. There is a plaintive quality to it, but she also can't stop herself. Mm-hmm. She's going to be honest. And I yeah. do think maybe this is where the the stage background with McDormand comes into play a little bit is that I think she's one of those actresses who does truly understand letting the script do the work. And this is a line that does a lot of the work and McDormand just plays it the right way. You want to talk about unapologetic. I mean, Elaine's act of defiance is you will not stop me from being a mother and loving my children my way. And if that means not coddling your daughter, who is clearly looking to be reassured and is looking for some validation and love and attention and telling her exactly how you feel, she does it. And I think I'd say it that she delivers what is clearly a mean line, but without any meanness at all. It is, as I suggested, simply honest. And that's something 
on the surface, any of us would say we would want from our parents. We would desire that honesty. And we probably think we as parents should have that type of honesty with our kids, except what happens, you know, when the truth really hurts. And we see how Elaine does choose to handle that. And I reflect back on when I saw Almost Famous for the first time. I was a couple of years away from becoming a parent. And I think like a lot of people, I probably saw Elaine Miller as you know, overbearing and obnoxious. And I was definitely all aligned with Anita and her Simon and Garfunkel album, which I love. I mean, any kid who's going to say, here's my act of defiance. America is the reason why I'm going off to see the world and be a stewardess. You know, I am all in. And I saw the way she was, you know, going along with, but still making things very difficult for William and pursuing his dream. And you know now when you watch Almost Famous, who's the hero of that movie? It's probably Elaine. I know I'm not the only one who's had that reaction upon revisiting the film. So, yeah, for me, it was definitely one or two in terms of my favorite McDormand performances. Yeah, it does come back to that honesty, especially in the, the scene you're talking about in the car where she's she's honest to a fault, even as a mother. And even that scenario, she can't hold back and, and try to – she couldn't lie to her kids. You can't imagine a situation where she'd lie to them, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. That brings us to our number one. We did spoil it at the beginning of the show and definitely going with what is probably an obvious or a cliche choice. But there's a reason for that. Yeah. Marge Gunderson. Got to be Marge. From Fargo. Our number one, right? Yeah. I mean, we did a top five Coen Brothers characters list, made it the Marge Gunderson memorial list. Yeah. And so we had to talk about her this time we around, did. right? Give her her due. The pregnant Minnesota police chief. I think. This is, you know, a, a nicely balanced comic and dramatic performance. You get the comic, especially in those early investigation scenes with Officer Lou that we heard at the top of the show. So then I guess in the context of how I've been thinking about this, I did ask myself, where might be this this quality of anger in, in Marge Gunderson? And for me, I landed on that that Marge's basically Zen McDormand because mm -hmm. the, the anger is there. I think especially at the end. Uh, and the one scene I want to focus on is uh, after she's arrested, Peter Stormare and, and tells him, you know, there's more to life than money, don't you know? And, and, and thinks about it and says, I just don't understand it. I guess there's a reading that Marge will become more of a standard McDormand character going forward after this experience. Maybe she'll have been changed. Hmm. Maybe she'll be hardened. She's been disillusioned. Yeah. I mean, I, I can see that argument, but I kind of like the Zen reading that what you're seeing yeah. here and even early on is a focused anger. She channels that into her professionalism, I think. And her anger is also lightened by the love that she gets from her husband, Norm played by John Carroll Lynch. And I think that's why in the car there with Stormare, she she expresses the scolding. This is nice that it follows up your pick of Elaine, Adam, because she expresses the scolding disappointment of a good mom. She absolutely does. Rather than something like vengeful rage, you know? Yep. Watch, watch her eyes in this scene too. She's shot in close up. And I think it's really telling when she chooses to look at Stormare in the rear view mirror because mm -hmm. she gives that mom look, right? And then at other moments, she chooses to gaze forward. And that's where you see her kind of considering the existential implications of what she's been through and what she's seen. There's more to life than a little money, you know. Don't you know that? Here you are, 
and it's a beautiful day. So, yeah, I think it it really doesn't get any better on screen with McDormand than than Marge Gunderson. Yeah, and the scene that I rewatched today that I think fits perfectly with everything you're saying is the confrontation scene with William H. Macy's Jerry Lundegaard when they finally meet pretty late into this movie. And if you watch her questioning him, if I recall correctly, this is the first time they've met and she has no reason to assume that he's guilty of anything. She's just yeah, talking to him right. as the... Yeah, as the executive sales manager, she thinks something is a little bit fishy. She's just pursuing a lead, though, the car that may have gone missing off the lot. So you watch the way she's questioning. She is persistent without presuming any guilt. She's just doing her job. She's not trying to make him uncomfortable. She is doing her job as politely and as curiously as she possibly can. And it only changes when he gets snippy and impolite with her. Mm -hmm. When he says, ma'am... I've answered your question. That's the moment finally where she is taken aback and she knows that something is wrong. Yeah, I see. So how do you, have you done any kind of inventory recently? The car's not from our lot, ma'am. But how do you know that for sure without doing a... Well, I would know. I'm the executive sales manager. Yeah, but I understand. We run a pretty tight ship here. I know, but, well, how do they establish that, sir? I mean, are the cars counted daily, or what kind of a routine here? Ma'am, I answered your question. I'm sorry, sir? Ma'am, I answered your question. I answered the darn... I'm cooperating here, and there, uh, there's no... Uh... Sir, you have no call to get snippy with me. I'm just doing my job here. I'm... That, for me, is really what gets at the heart of Marge's defiance. I'm going to pursue this case as professionally, but also as politely as possible. And she will not compromise or, or deviate from that. And she really does even kind of maintain that, that demeanor of politeness, even when she finally has to be more curt with him and put him back in his place because he's clearly speaking out of turn here. Another moment I love is that, of course, initial introductory scene, the famous one. We played it at the top of the show with Lou and the line about not agreeing with his police work. That's also a moment. I don't know why I'd never made this connection before. Maybe it's just because I haven't seen Fargo in so long, but there's kind of a throwback to it in No Country for Old Men, right? Where we get Tommy Lee Jones and I think it's Garrett Dillahunt and they show up at the scene of the crime and they're walking through it. And of course, my favorite line is Dillahunt saying, so this was earlier, they're getting set to trade, then whoa, differences. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. those three words, then whoa, differences, is accounting for a whole lot of bloodshed, you know, and awfulness. And then here, it's it's her saying, oh, so this happened and this happened, and then, then it was an execution type deal. <laughs> totally. Yeah, those two movies, so, you know, watching them back to back and placing who is the Marge character in No Country would be interesting because they're they're almost mirror images of each other. And I think you could argue at the same time they end up in the same place or maybe you could say they end up in very different places. But that that end scene of her in the car with Storm Air was more chilling than I remember it, I'll say. Yeah, 
No, it absolutely is. Those are our top five Francis McDormand performances. Josh, any others that you feel like you got to mention here? Yeah, I think, you know, the Coen Brothers film that I would throw into the mix is Doris in The Man Who Wasn't There. I know that, you know, I, I think I like that Coen Brothers film more than most people, and she's great in it. She's also really good in a 2002 police drama starring Robert De Niro. This is just a supporting part, but uh, City by the Sea. And then you mentioned the film you first saw her in was Raising Arizona. Is that what you said? Adam? Yeah. Yeah, for me, it was Dark Man. Do you remember Dark Man? <laughs> I, think I never I did have, see it. I think I may have convinced Debbie to go on a date to see this 1990 <laughs> Sam Raimi superhero movie starring yeah. uh, Liam Neeson. Uh, she's opposite Neeson in that. And I think that was the first time I saw her on screen, actually. So 1984's Blood Simple or 1985's Blood Simple. She plays Abby really a key performance as the movie's femme fatale. I think she's really great there. And Burn After Reading is one of those Coen Brothers movies. I've talked about this a lot. I'm I'm mixed on it. It's not a favorite Coen Brothers film of mine, pretty low in my ranking of their filmography. I just have a feeling. I'm not trying to prevent any hate mail here. I know that there are a lot of people who love it. I imagine that I would probably have some real affection for her, Linda Litsky, if I rewatched that movie and reappraised it a little bit. I mentioned Mississippi Burning. That was her breakout, her first Oscar nomination playing Mrs. Pell. I do think she's very good in it, probably better than the movie overall. 2000s Wonder Boys. I really like her as Sarah Gaskell, the love interest to yeah, Michael Douglas's character. And you mentioned it, Mrs. Bishop from Moonrise Kingdom. We would love to hear your choices or any other comments about the show. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Also, you can see this top five list and all of our top five lists at filmspotting.net slash lists. Josh, that's our show. If you want to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, Adam is at FilmSpotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over in the show archives at FilmSpotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And you can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll. It's that time of year. What is the best film of 2020? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit FilmSpotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at FilmSpotting.net slash newsletter. Out on digital this weekend, somehow Steven Soderbergh snuck up on all of us with another movie, Let Them All Talk, starring Meryl Streep, Lucas Hedges, Diane Weist in that with Candace Bergen. I can't wait. I didn't know I couldn't wait, but now I can't wait. That is on HBO Max. Alex Weedle, the fourth film in Steve McQueen's Small Axe series. Josh can I say that people are going to hear more about at least one of these Steve McQueen small axe movies over the course of the next few weeks? I did say something about my top 10 list getting pretty much yes. upended, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. We'll just we'll just leave it at that. Also, I'm Your Woman. This is one of your most anticipated movies of the fall, Josh, starring Rachel Brosnahan and The Prom, a movie my daughter Sophie and I actually did see on Broadway. That stage musical is coming to Netflix, I believe. Meryl Streep in that, along with Nicole Kidman, James Corden, Kerry Washington, and Keegan-Michael Key. Next week, it is time, the precursor to our top 10 films of 2020. We'll share our Chicago Film Critics Association ballots, our picks. We're going to talk them through. Maybe they won't be all set in stone when we start the taping, but by the end, we'll know our five finalists for a host of categories, including Most Promising Performer, Best Actress, Best Actor, Best Cinematography, and a lot more. So yes, the onslaught of film spotting end-of-year content begins in earnest next week. 
Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is by Lucinda Williams. It comes from the album Good Souls, Better Angels. More information is at LucindaWilliams.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.